0: Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that seeks simplicity amongst the complexities when talking about cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories including Transport Corridors, a new report from Infrastructure Australia. We have a couple of stories from Audi. The first is the launch of their second generation Q5 and SQ5 medium-size SUV, and the second is a very clever upgrade to their all-wheel drive system. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith, we take a merry look at stories including imagining a future of centralised swarm control. It's to do with autonomous vehicles and drones. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news.
1: Infrastructure Australia has launched a new policy paper compelling Australian governments to act to protect vital infrastructure corridors. This is the third paper released as part of Infrastructure Australia's reform series. They say that the protection and early acquisition of just seven corridors identified as national priorities could save Australian taxpayers close to $11 billion in future land purchase and construction costs. Avoiding tunnelling, which costs $100 million per lane kilometre to build, Is one of the big savings as well as creating less social disruption. The most urgent priority for protection is the East Coast high-speed rail corridor. Others include the Outer Melbourne Ring Road and the Western Sydney Airport rail line along with a number of freight lines. We have often thought of a distracted driving
0: crash as a momentary lack of attention, perhaps starting to happen up to six seconds before the crash but researchers at MIT have found that there were often indicators at least 20 seconds beforehand. Now that cars are developing systems to measure the physiological movements of drivers, this may be a valuable and expanding area for road safety. Not only to detect things like a driver getting drowsy, but also to determine the best way to alert the driver, and even the car to implement defensive actions such as slowing down.
1: Tailgating is the leading cause of rear-end crashes, with one in two drivers failing to keep a safe following distance, according to a report recently released by the Queensland University of Technology. The main reason for people tailgating is that they don't want queue jumpers to get an advantage by cutting in. Rear-end crashes are more likely to occur in urban areas with speed limits of around 60 to 70 kilometres per hour. 55% of drivers were found to leave less than a 2 second gap between them and the vehicle in front and 44% less than a 1 second gap. Predictors of tailgating include higher levels of traffic volume, higher traffic speeds and age and gender of the driver. Another reason drivers may not be leaving a safe following distance was because 60% of drivers were using metres rather than the recommended seconds to assess a safe following distance. Rear-end collisions account for around 1 in 5 accidents on Queensland's roads and represent approximately a quarter of all claims to the Queensland Compulsory Third Party or CTP scheme. It
0: is usually thought that Sydney has worse congestion than Melbourne because it has more people and the road network is compromised by the impact of large waterways. But work by the Grattan Institute suggests otherwise. When comparing the travel time in the peak period with the relatively free-flowing middle-of-the-night run, Melbourne has a higher peak of slower travel times in the morning, but Sydney has a similar but longer period of slow travel times in the afternoon. In the morning peak, an average Melbourne CBD commuting trip takes close to 70% longer than it would in the middle of the night. In Sydney, the average morning commute to the CBD takes 50 to 60% longer than it would in the middle of the night. But the travel grind varies significantly for different areas in Melbourne, with the north having a much slower trip than other areas. In Sydney, most areas have a similar decline in speed in the peak period, Unless you are
1: going against the peak direction. Formula E is a racing series for open-wheeler race cars powered by electric motors. It has produced some good racing while being symbolic of a potential power source of the future. Now Audi has become the first German car manufacturer to race in the series. Audi has taken over the ABT Sportsline team, which Audi has been associated with since the series began in 2014. Renault, Jaguar and Mahindra are also involved in the series. It is
0: now becoming common knowledge that traffic congestion on weekends can be nearly as bad, if not worse in some instances, than during the week. To try and alleviate this problem, the New South Wales Transport Minister, Andrew Constance, has announced that 750 new train services will be added on the weekend from later this year. Weekend train use has increased by 68% between 2013 and 2016. To be implemented in late 2017, the additional weekend services will boost frequency at many suburban stations to a train at least every 15 minutes. And that has been the news. Audi has just launched its second-generation Q5 medium-sized SUV, along with a hot version SQ5. Four of the top six best-selling Audis in Australia are SUVs, so clearly this is an important car for them. New looks, and they say more features and new technology to make the all-wheel drive look better. Sounds good, so we drove the new models from Melbourne to Adelaide, typically on secondary roads, to see if they lived up to the expectations. The range comes with three engines. There's a 2 litre diesel, 140 kilowatts, 400 newton metres. Strong off the line with good low down torque. On the open road it is adequate without running like a stallion. Then there's a 2 litre turbo petrol engine with more power, 180 kilowatts, and nearly as much torque, 370 newton metres. It runs more freely, giving more confidence when overtaking, for example. Both 2-litre engines come with 7-speed Tiptronic dual-clutch transmissions. The diesel is rated at 5.3 litres per 100. The petrol gets 7.3 litres per 100 in the laboratory tests. Then we have the HOT SQ5. Unlike the previous model, it does not have a high-performance diesel engine. Nonetheless, this one is a turbocharged petrol engine with 260 kilowatts and 500 newton metres of torque. It still obviously goes very well, helped by an 8-speed Tiptronic automatic gearbox with sports mode. It ran with wind in its hair. Audi gave a bit of a wink when asked if the hot diesel might come in the near future which is either good news or I can't read non-verbal signals. The high horsepower is great if you can show it, which is not all that often. Fuel consumption of the hot SQ5 is rated at 8.7 litres per hundred combined cycle. All the models are very sure-footed on the open road at touring speeds. Vehicle noise is really quite minimal and there is a general ambience of well-constructed luxury. In recent years, engines have been getting more powerful, but vehicles have also been putting on weight with extra features and more electronics. But with lighter metals and better packaging, the Q5s are lighter overall, with the diesel engine model losing 90 kilograms. It all helps with driving performance and fuel economy. They have a new development in the all-wheel drive system, which means that you only get all-wheel drive when you need it so most of the driving is in the more economical two-wheel drive. We will do a separate video on this impressive bit of technology. On the outside it looks better, more purposeful and I guess a bit more masculine. The old model looked functional but by modern standards was a bit bland. The new vehicle is 34mm longer, it's the same width, 6mm taller and has a 12mm longer wheelbase. Inside has usable space, except for the rear passengers when you have a big person in the front, and that's a common feature with this style of vehicle. There's some good driver safety assistance features, with adaptive cruise control, distance warning, hill descent, park assist, cross traffic assist at the rear, and exit warning, which I like. That means that when you go to get out of the car, you don't door another car, or more tragically still, a cyclist. The interior has functional simplicity but not adventurous styling. There is a good 8.3 inch multimeter interface screen and Audi's fantastic digital dashboard. The information is crystal clear making it easy to read. The side storage areas and the doors are easy to get to but not well designed for holding bottles and the cup holders back near the armrest are cumbersome to use. The seats have been redesigned from the ground up and feel good even on a long drive. There's 550 litres of luggage capacity. That's up a smidgen, 10 litres, from the previous model. Flatten the second row of seats and you get 1,550 litres of space. A partition net and luggage compartment cover are standard with four lashing points. Moving up the models or picking some options can add features to your vehicle. It is good that most of the safety features are included in all models, but there is an adaptive air suspension with up to 220mm of ground clearance. The ride also felt softer on the open road. Additional options are a comfort package, an S-line style package, which includes 20-inch sports alloy wheels, and a Technic package, including things like a heads-up display. There are separate items like heated front seats as well. They are not bargain basement prices, but they are significantly lower than previous Audi offerings. The base model with a diesel engine has a list price of $65,900. The 2-litre petrol starts at $73,211 and the SQ5 is $99,611 to all prices you must add on-road costs. After the test, we hopped into a credible, everyday new, small SUV, but immediately noticed the increased noise and a lack of a refined feeling. So Q5 and the hot SQ5 gives Audi a distinct position of prestige, technical development and comfort for a price. There is no mistake, though, that SUVs are now very car-like, in what they offer. And you can see a video report of that story on our website at drivenmedia.com.au This is Overdrive across Australia. Audi's first production all-wheel drive car was launched in 1980. It was a permanent four-wheel drive system linked to the power of a turbocharged engine. They also developed a rally car that used this great grip and power. But a permanent four-wheel drive system uses more energy and wears out more parts. Dieter Weidermann, the head of Audi all-wheel drive systems, talks about the energy you could save.
2: An all-wheel drive system has many rotating parts. 80% of the additional fuel consumption that an all-wheel drive system has is the rear differential and it's big ring gear that's turning in the oil and the oil uh, wants to stop it and the ring gear is going with the tears into the oil, taking the oil, splashing it on the walls and the the bearings of the bevel set. So um, power losses in the rear differential.
0: For a road car it would be good to have four-wheel drive only when you needed it. Some old four-wheel drive vehicles had hubs that you could get out of the vehicle and turn the dial and it would disengage the drive to the front wheels. Later, this became a switch in the cabin. This was an all-or-nothing situation. You had to make a decision that would be in place for a long period of time and that decision was a time-consuming effort. Dieter knows that when driving along the road, the need for extra grip comes and goes.
2: There are many situations in public driving where you have an advantage with an all-wheel drive system. These are only short events. When you're accelerating, it's when you're overtaking, it's when you're turning, especially, of course, if the road is wet or on a gravel road or something like that.
0: Some manufacturers developed a real-time system which automatically engaged all-wheel drive when something adverse happened like losing traction on the front wheels. Audi wanted to be more proactive.
2: So we wanted to make a system that uh, makes sure that in every situation the overdrive gives you an advantage, the overdrive will already be engaged. But in the other situations, uh, we switch over to the um, fuel efficiency mode with the front-wheel drive.
0: But for it to work, the system had to think and react quickly.
2: So we are really simulating in real time what will happen with the engine, gearbox and body of the car within the next 500 milliseconds. So we make a calculation simulation forecast for 500 milliseconds, and we are calculating this every 10 milliseconds. And our system is so fast that we only need about 200 milliseconds to engage. And if we have a forecast of 500 milliseconds and only need 200 milliseconds, we are always on time when we need it.
0: Audi have now launched a system in the Q5 and the SQ5 models in Australia. How they predict your needs is not clairvoyance, but a clever use of information and a very quick response. They have 15 algorithms evaluating different operational conditions in your car. Here's how one of the algorithms works.
2: When you push the throttle, it takes a little time until the engine has really built up the torque. The engine knows what to do. But uh, the torque is not uh, there instantly. It, it, it takes some milliseconds. And we have a simulation model, so we uh, know what the engine will do. We don't wait until the engine torque is built up. But in our simulation model, we know what will happen within the next 500 milliseconds. And um, when we know we are pretty close to the uh, traction potential of the front wheels, uh, then we will engage the drive system before, uh, before it is really needed.
0: They will even take into account the weather. Cold weather is more likely to mean wet or icy roads, and the frictional resistance of the road, or what sort of driver I am. If I am a dynamic driver, they engage four-wheel drive earlier. But just how much, then, is the system operating? Dieter's team has developed an app to show what is happening and how often the system is used. We drove the car carefully over a dirt road. All-wheel drive was engaged 34% of the time. Then we drove down a typical two-lane country road in Australia. In 111 kilometres, the car had all-wheel drive engaged for just 6% of the time. But it had been used on 18 specific occasions. This might be locations of poor grip, tight corners or overtaking. Here is the plot of the road and the times we engaged all-wheel drive. Here are the times when we were in dynamic driving mode. This does not correspond with every four-wheel drive engagement because the car is giving intense consideration as to whether we need the extra grip. Travelling 94% of the time in two-wheel drive means we have been far more efficient without having to compromise the safety value of having all-wheel drive when we needed it. This is Overdrive across Australia. And finally for the program, let's talk some unusual stories to do with motoring and transport. On the line is Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian.
3: G'day, David.
0: Now, I thought for a while there the Jetsons, as a prediction of the future, were wrong. However, I'm starting to modify my opinion. They were wrong because they had their little devices were still controlled by the human. They still seemed to pollute out the back. But the thing I didn't like about them was that they were in corridors and I thought all they were doing was translating what we do on the ground up into the air. Oh, this now, is the
3: what, Jetsons flying cars, David. Yep. Yes.
0: Yeah. And now Stanford University has been looking at just how we might manage both on the ground and in the air with drones an enormous number of devices going hither and whatever. Now, the uh, point about that they're saying is do we manage that by each vehicle having enough technology to try and avoid everything around them or do we try and centralise it and uh, try and control it in a central way. I quite like the central way for one simple reason. If we are buzzing around like bees individually uh, coping with everything, we're darting backwards and forwards, and that'll be most uncomfortable for people in the devices. So I think there is a need for a centralised control. Do you think I have, uh, am I barking up the right tree?
3: Well, David, I, I'm with you on the centralised control for, for, for a different reason. Mm. So so that of the two options, the one of them, a the centralised control, is much more democratic, right? You know, as the controller, you can decide which vehicle gets priority over another. So Ooh. you can decide, well, you know, I want transit to be given, you know, priority over private vehicles. Under the distributed system, I could imagine a future where you could pay extra to have a more aggressive algorithm in your car to intimidate other vehicles so that they would get out of your way for example so if all the vehicles are kind of negotiating amongst themselves if one is a bully and comes through sort of pulling its way through, then, you know, you, you, it's not very democratic. They may force their way through, and in general, you'll be able to pay to do that. Now, I can I can pay now and buy a vehicle that's more powerful than other people's vehicles, right? So I can beat them at the lights and I can be faster on the road. Well, I, I think the distributed model would possibly see more of the same, that wealthy people would pay to have, in a sense, a software that gave them an advantage over the other vehicles.
0: Mm. So, it, so it's it, a bit just like today with people pulling yes. their way through the traffic. <laughs>
3: <laughs> exactly yeah
0: something that was proclaimed as the future is not going to be is it brian
3: that's right david we'll probably all remember the straddling bus china's sort of idea that came out of nowhere for a, a vehicle that rather than going sort of around the traffic congestion would go over it so the vehicle uh, was designed kind of to be a in a sense a bridge driving around so you know as passengers you you sat on an upper level and uh, there was a great sort of space underneath in which uh, the vehicle drove over the top of rows of cars. And so vehicles could sort of drive under it. A lot of transport professionals looking at it found quite a few strange problems with it. And uh, uh, the the idea has failed and failed spectacularly, but not just that something like 32 people who are associated with now been associated with it have been arrested for fraud and, and illegal fundraising. So, uh, it appears that not only was it a, a bizarre idea that that perhaps wasn't grounded in reality, but it, it but it was a bit of a, a fundraising scam. Um, it certainly got a lot of attention, didn't it, David? But uh, an error. But uh, it's it, the only prototype is rusting. The government is is removing the test track, and it uh, looks like it's a an idea that never got off the ground.
1: Monorail,
2: monorail, monorail. It-
0: isn't it the case though is that we so often jump on the bandwagon pardon the pun of transport solutions as though they're going to be the be all and end all monorail was a classic example wasn't it Mm. it was the futuristic it was such a drop in the ocean even if it worked properly that it had little value in the whole scheme of things other than its image and in and, and the terms of in Sydney, for example, the number of people it carried. And by the way, it wasn't designed well. It was a fun ride. It wasn't a transport system. But even if it had have worked to its 10 times its potential capacity, it was merely a drop in the ocean.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's still something to be said for having a transport idea that, that generates a lot of interest and, and passion and might lead somewhere. You know, so the idea of a of you know the monorail was a bit of a silly thing, but it was an investment in transit in a city, and and it probably helped to to bring the tram back, for example. But the elevated bus, I think, um, the straddling bus, I'm not sure it was going anywhere. But still, yes, people are looking for a silver bullet. They're looking for a solution, and not only that. They, they believe that the solution solved the problem forever, don't they, David? So yeah, if only we widen this road, if only yes. we had a light rail, we wouldn't need to do anything else. And and transporting yes. cities is a continuum. You need to manage, you need to enhance, you need to to remove and, and add. So, you know, any of these solutions are part of the part of a solution, but they certainly are no silver bullet and the the straling bus. <laughs> this is such a fabulous example. Of a of a silver bullet that that never got
0: fired, Errol, do you drive the shortest distance between two points? You said that you wanted to, but might there be other factors in that? I would if I could, David. But if I was one of quite a few people out there, I might avoid directions that make me go through a tunnel if I was claustrophobic, for example. And apparently this is one of the reasons people avoid public transport. It's claustrophobia and other anxiety conditions which are exacerbated by being in a tunnel, for example. So based on this, the Transport for London has released a new map of the London Tube Network which shows which sections of the system are underground so that people can plan around sections with tunnels or underground stations. So it's an interesting take on things. Unfortunately, the map can't show you any magical situation that won't find you crammed like a sardine into a carriage at peak times. (laughs) Do you know, I I remember some statistics that suggested that up to 4% of people Uh, adjust their trips to try and avoid tunnels. Perhaps some can endure it, but if they can possibly avoid it, they will. Four percent, four or five percent, you know, that's nearly one in 20. That's an incredible number. Uh, And either that or they might do things like if it's a multi-lane tunnel, drive in the middle if they have to. Mm -hmm. Now, Brian, you would also know from transport that if you look at the skid marks – in say the M2 tunnel in Sydney, just near Epping, there's much more skid marks in the tunnel than there are outside the tunnel.
3: Yeah, I mean claustrophobia uh, is a real thing. People, I think, um, you know, perceive the lanes to be narrower and and the hmm. space to be less. But in, in the public transport terms, like the TFL map, um, you know, being in a train in a tunnel is hard to tell where you are. That's one one aspect is, you know, you, you don't really see the outside. You can't easily place yourself and you, you're sometimes not all that sure. You haven't missed your stop. But the interesting thing about this is I did a piece of work recently for the federal government uh, on the concept of whole of journey planning where you say, well, you might have a compliant public transport system, but there may well be parts of it that are, that are not compliant in, in different ways that don't meet people's needs. And so there are plenty of people with impairments or, or disabilities of some kind that prevent them from being able to travel and it may be things like um anxieties uh, uh we we spoke to quite a lot of people including some who um whose disability makes it seem as though they're drunk
0: all right gentlemen i look forward to uh, having a chat with you next week thanks very much for your time no worries david, thanks, david. and that was brian smith and errol smith and we were talking some quirky news And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dieter Viderman, Brian Smith, Errol Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.